0: Well, I have us just about time to go. We're going to be in Malachi 1 tonight. We're going to be looking at the first five verses in this book of Malachi, the first five verses. I think I'll read the text and then we'll have a word of prayer. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. I want to just point out when he says, I have hated Esau, notice those conjunctions and their wow consecutives in Hebrew, which would seem to suggest There's a real consecutive thought God's communicating there. I've hated Esau, and I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus said the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever." Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your inspired scriptures and your people who are out tonight. What a wonderful privilege it is, again, to open up the precious, inspired word of God and pour through the words that you've given to us for our instruction and for our good. And I pray that these words will minister to us tonight, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Malachi is the last book of the minor prophets, and it is the last book in our Bibles of the Old Testament. And to truly understand this text and this book of Malachi, we need to accurately understand the disaster that God's people were in. There's a reason why God stopped speaking to his people for the next 400 plus years. It's not a coincidence. There's a reason for it. These were people, by the way, who were regularly going to worship, they were regularly giving offerings, they were regularly going through motions of serving God, so what's the problem? Well, the problem was they were a spiritual disaster, and Malachi establishes that fact. As we examine this last book of the Old Testament, it contains 55 verses, we count 27, 27 negative realities about these people that are almost half the book. They were questioning God's love. They did not honor God. They did not respect God. These are things that you'll see named in the book. They despised the name of the Lord. They gave defiled offerings to God. There was not one person who realized their worship was worthless and should be shut down. They were weary of giving God offerings, they gave God blemished offerings, they did not revere God, they did not stand in awe of God, they did not want true biblical instruction and the priests weren't giving them true biblical instruction. They would not respond to true biblical instruction. They profaned God's covenant by hating their brother. They profaned God's covenant by divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying godless, idolatrous foreign women that were worshiping foreign gods. They called those who were evil good and those who do good evil. They got involved in sorcery. They got involved in adultery. They were involved in a life of falsehood, not even presenting what was true. They did not pay proper wages. They did not care about the widow, the orphan, the alien. They did not fear God. They turned away from obeying God's word. They were robbing God of the offerings they should have given to God. They spoke arrogant words against God. They actually said it was vain to serve God. They also said there was no profit to serving the Lord. And they were saying that arrogant, wicked people are blessed by God. Now, those are the things that show up in this book of Malachi, what God's own people were doing. And it was to these people that God raised up Malachi, who was his man and his prophet, to communicate his word. We may notice from verse 1 that it's an oracle. The word oracle, as we pointed out last time, is Messiah. This book is something that will not be a light book. It's a book that will put a burden and responsibility on the people. Actually, when you think of an oracle of the word of the Lord, you have to think in terms of something that's a burden for the prophet to even communicate. I mean, who wants to communicate a message like this? So it's a burden for the prophet. Then it's a burden to the people of what he's going to say to the people. And then really it's a burden to the Lord Because the Lord has to actually come up with this data and this word to give to the people who are not right with him. So it's an oracle. It's an oracle of the word of the Lord, which means these are inspired words, inspired by God, and by virtue of the fact it's capital L-O-R-D, that refers to the self-existing sovereign covenant God of Israel, the I Am, who can do whatever he wants to do. So it's an oracle of the word of the Lord. It's an oracle to Israel. This is a book that's given to national Israel, who were the people of God, who still are the people of God. They're still involved in this kind of stuff that we just went through. And this is an oracle given through Malachi. Malachi is God's man. God speaks his word through his chosen prophet. And if you're a man of God and your job is to accurately communicate the word of God to the people, it is not going to be easy. It will be a burden, just like the word oracle says. Now, the point of the book is to get God's people to turn away from their ritualistic and formalistic religion so that they would get their hearts right with the Lord. God wanted to motivate these people to just quit going through religious motions that they were just regularly going through, and he wanted them to get their hearts right with him. Now, the first message that Malachi actually presents to motivate the people to get away from ritualistic religion and their despicable lifestyle, and get back to a real relationship with God is God's love for his people. That's how Malachi begins this. In fact, it's a staggering thought. When you think about the list of things we introduced you to tonight that actually come from this book of Malachi, when you think about that list, And then you think about the fact that God loves these people. I mean, you have to admit, it is staggering to think that God would love these pathetic people, but he did. He did. They were his people. And so when Malachi begins this document, he basically says to them, the thing that should motivate... God's people, to not be devoted to physical ritualistic religion, but to a real right relationship with God, is the love that God has for his people, which is proved by his election and preservation of his people. I'm telling you, only God could love people this deranged. When we analyze what these people were doing, 27 pathetic spiritual realities we certainly conclude the love that God has for his people is unconditional because there's absolutely nothing in this group or list that would merit you loving them. And certainly when we went through those 27 items, you would walk away and say, man, how could God love those people? But he does. And there are three parts to the opening of this this book of Malachi. First of all, God declares to his people that he loves them. That's what he says in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Malachi begins in verse 2 by speaking in behalf of God. It starts out with an amazing grace statement, I have loved you. The pronoun you in both the Hebrew text and also in the Greek Septuagint is plural. So it's not just talking about one person, it's talking about the nation. It's talking about the people of God. And it is something to consider the love of God here in view of what these people were doing. You know, someone said, when we're thinking right about ourselves and about God, our thought should be smile and be amazed that God loves you after all you've put Him through. That is really something. And there's a lot of wisdom in that statement. Now, this is the first of nine statements between God and Israel that take place in the book in which God will make a statement and then He'll elaborate on the statement by saying, here's the way it is, but this is what you'll say. I'm making a statement to you, but this is what you'll say. Now, the people may not have been going around saying this verbally, but they were saying this in their hearts and God was seeing it. So regardless of whether they were saying this verbally or responding to this spiritually, God saw what they were doing and knew what they were doing. Now, the verb says, I have loved you. It's one that would prompt us to ask a couple of questions. In Hebrew, Ahabati Ethikem, I have loved you, is kalstem, perfect tense. In Greek, it is agapesa humas, which is aorist tense. The question you would ask when you read, I have loved you, and it's a perfect tense in Hebrew, an aorist tense in Greek, is does that mean that God loved them in the past tense but no longer loves them? Or does this mean that God has loved them from the past, continues to love them in the present? William Gesenius emphasizes the Hebrew perfect tense tends to denote action in the past, but it can be continued on into the present and into the future. And when the Septuagint uses the aorist tense verb that looks back to a point of time, that would seem to suggest you're looking back to something past, but Dana and Manny suggest there could be a looking back to the point when the love started and did still exist. I pulled out my old Hebrew grammar for my Hebrew course, and the perfect tense in Hebrew can be interpreted three ways. It can refer to a definite past moment. It can refer to a point in the past with continuing effect. It can refer to a general present time. But the determining factor as to what God means here and as to what Malachi is saying here is going to be the context. And since verse 5 says, your eyes are going to see this, and there's a, there's a contextual connection between verse 2 and verse 5, we would conclude that the love that God started at some point of time in the past for his people has a continual effect into the present time and is, in fact, going to go on into the future, to the time when they will see this, when they will see the fulfillment of what God is going to do. So God begins by saying to Israel, I have loved you, I would understand the perfect cal stem verb to mean, I still love you and I will continue to love you, even though you are a complete mess. God does not say this about any other nation in existence. There is no other nation in the world that he says this about. And understand that point. That is an important point. He says that about Israel. We know, though, that the love of God is connected to us as individuals. Because Paul said that in Romans. He said God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the apostle John revealed that the reason we love God is because he first loved us. So this same love of God that he has for Israel applies to the people of God who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That same kind of love is there for them. So he says, I've loved you. Now, the second part is the people's response to God's love by asking, how? You'll Notice in verse 2, But you say, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You would think God's people would be overwhelmed with the realization God's love us, not these people. God knew how these people thought. They had an arrogant audacity to say to God, Well, how have you loved us? Where's the proof? Where's the evidence that you love us? And it's clear that this statement would indicate that God's people doubted the fact that God loved them. When they were told by God that he loves them, they're debating the point. In fact, if you go over to chapter three and verse 15, the verse says in chapter three, verse 15, so now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. It would almost like they're saying God loves the wicked people. He doesn't, How's he loved us? The nation Israel was like a confused wife or spoiled brat child. A husband loves his wife, makes sacrifices for his wife, works hard for his wife, provides for his wife, is faithful to his wife, and then the wife says, Why don't you show me you love me? Or a parent gives birth to a child, they make sacrifices for the child. They do without at times for the children. They provide for the children. They take care of the children. They see that the needs of the children are met and then the parent doesn't let them do something. Why don't you love me? That's what Israel was doing to God. So God begins by addressing that. These people were a real piece of work. They whine, they complain like little kids to God all the time. Just by their responses to God would have been enough to have him say, you know what, I'm done with you. I don't want any more to do with you. They question God. How have you loved us, God? How have we despised your name? You'll see that. How have we defiled you? You'll see that. How have we wearied you? You'll see that. How shall we return to you? How have we robbed you? How have we ever spoken against you? These people were either blind as bats or dumber than a box of rocks. It's no wonder God stopped speaking to these people for the next 450 years. In fact, it's amazing to me he speaks to them at all, and it's amazing to me he didn't stop speaking to them forever. Now, the reason why they're probably doubting God and questioning God concerning his love is because... Their concept of the love of God was distorted. Their thinking was, well, if God loved us, how come we're not experiencing the millennial bliss in life that those prophets like Haggai and Zechariah said one day we would experience? I mean, they knew about the sovereignty of God. It's true God is sovereign over a person's situations and circumstances of life. They knew about that, and that is true. God is sovereign over a person's circumstances and situations of life. And so their thinking is, if God loved us, then how come we're experiencing hardships? If God loved us, why is the political situation so lousy? Why is it that we are suffering at times if God loves us? They had been back in Jerusalem now about a hundred years since that Babylonian captivity. And yet, at that point, when they were there, when Malachi is written, that kingdom, that righteous kingdom, that as a righteous king that's showering them with blessings, is still not been established, and they were still under the dominant rule of the Persians, And as I mentioned, Haggai and Zechariah had told them that there was going to come a kingdom that would one day feature them as the nation of God. So they're questioning God. They're saying, well, how have you loved us? We don't have that. They were, as Mignon Jacob said, skeptical and cynical. I don't think we're too far removed from this kind of thinking at times. I mean, if something goes wrong, let's say we have something physically go wrong and we aren't immediately healed or if we didn't get the promotion or we're not favored, we become somewhat skeptical and cynical about God's love too. Well, God, don't you love me? Don't you love me? How foolish a question is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us? But that's the mindset that these people were in. Apparently, The thought that had never entered their minds was that, you know, maybe, maybe something's wrong with us here. Maybe the love of God isn't the problem. Maybe there's something wrong with us and we're the problem. And they never considered the fact that they did not reverence God, they did not stand in awe of God, they weren't honoring God, they weren't esteeming God. And instead of them saying, you know, maybe we better take a look at ourselves, they're just saying, God, how in the world do you love us? So that brings us to the third part. God says, I've proved my love for you by the doctrine of election. God could have offered, oh man, he could have offered a lot of stuff to prove the point that he loved him. He could have said, well, hey, I brought you out of Babylon. You were a captive there, and I went and got you and brought you back here. There's proof that I love you right there. He could have said, I got you back here, and I actually provided for you. You were able to build your homes. And I haven't blessed you at 100% level because you haven't put me at 100% level. But I've certainly seen to it that you've had plenty to eat. You've had all of your needs met. I've protected you. I've preserved you. I mean, he could have said any of that, but God doesn't choose to do that. He says, you want proof that I love you? Well, I chose you. End of discussion. There's my answer. And there are four elective proofs that he gives of his elective love. Number one, God's love was proved by his elective choice of an individual. Verse two, but you say, How have I loved you? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau, and I made him mountains of desolation. Now, there are four elective proofs that God loves his people that have to do with election, and the first one is he chooses individuals. It's a fact. God doesn't say, I hope you like this doctrine. He just says, here's the reality of it. And it is a fact that some people are more favored than other people in the mind of God. All men are sinners, but not all men are chosen by God. All people have a common denominator in the fact that they're all sinful, but they're not all the elective choice of an elective God. And to prove his elective choice, God starts at the beginning when he made a choice between two individuals. He made this choice before they were even born. He's God, and he can do what he wants. He can choose what he wants. And people say, well, yes, but he made this choice of his based on foreknowledge of the way that Esau would turn out. Well, if that's the case, if he's making his election choice on the basis of foreknowledge, why didn't he just prevent Esau from even being born? This isn't based on foreknowledge. Actually, when you look at it, Esau is a more likable guy. If you carefully study the account of Esau and Jacob in the book of Genesis, Esau is actually more of a guy of integrity in many ways. He was an outdoor type of guy. Isaac loved Esau. On the other hand, you have Jacob, who was a kind of a mama's boy. Rebekah loved him. Jacob, though, was the kind of guy who would make a good politician. He knows how to manipulate things to get his own way. He's a liar. He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. He actually went and stole a birthright from his brother. Now, Esau, of course, was the firstborn, and he had the right to the birthright. He's the one who should have got it. But Jacob was a new guy who knew how to play the odds right, so he would get it. So he hung around the kitchen like a mama's boy. He learned how to cook, and I'm not saying that that's wrong. It's good to learn how to cook, but that's what obviously he did. Esau, on the other hand, is a hunter. I mean, he's going out in the mountains to get food. He was just Isaac's favored son. Well, you know the story. I mean, Jacob goes and dresses up, puts skins of animals, goes in before Isaac and fools him and he lies to his dad and he tells his dad that he's Esau when he's not Esau. And then the whole story is an ugly story. And then Esau comes in and he's hungry and he's willing to sell the birthright. He doesn't see much value to it. And so he's willing to sell the birthright for just some bread and stew. So when you look at just the mechanics of this, you'd say, why in the world would God choose Jacob? But God said, I made that choice. That's my elective choice. I have mercy on whom I have mercy on whom I want. I'll have compassion on whom I want, and I'll hate whomever I want. And Paul would say, in actually quoting this very text of Scripture, who in the world are we to talk back to God on this stuff? We just better realize God does this and accept it and... If you are a believer in Christ, you thank God for that reality. The second elective choice is, I hated and did not choose Esau. The point of this is, my love is proved by the fact I chose you like I chose Jacob. And as Dr. Charles Ryrie said, since the love of God is an elective love, the hate of God is just the opposite. I hated and did not choose Esau. Now, when Esau ultimately came to terms with what Jacob had done. We learned from Genesis 27 that he hated Jacob and he wanted to kill him. In fact, that's why Jacob fled. He knew, I can't stay around this area. And that took him out in the lands where he met Laban and the girls. And you know that story. Now, God is a God of love here. And he reveals, I'm a God of love and I'm a God of hate. There are things that God loves. There are things that God hates. There are people God loves. There are people God hates. There are things God chooses based on his love. There are things that God does not choose based on his hate. People don't like to hear this about God, but that's what God does reveal about himself in his word. And the actual Hebrew word hate, (sinay) is one that refers to hatred, and it's often used as God hating something and viewing it as an enemy. In 2 Chronicles 19.2, God's word says his people should not love those who hate the Lord. In fact, God says, if you love those who hate the Lord, you'll bring wrath on yourself. We're talking about hatred. In Psalm 52.3, God says, you'll uproot and break people who love evil more than good. In Proverbs 6.16-18, 6, God says, I hate seven things. They're an abomination to me. And he specifically aims that hatred not only at the sin, but the one doing it. In Proverbs 12.1, God says, one who loves discipline loves knowledge. One who hates reproof is stupid. In Proverbs thirteen twenty-four, the one who does not discipline a son hates him, and the one who does loves him. In Proverbs fourteen twenty, God says the poor are often hated, the rich are often loved. In Amos five eleven, God says, Hate evil, love good. Micah three, two, and four, God says he will not listen to those who hate good and love evil, and in Romans twelve nine, God says, abhor and hate evil and cling to what is good. Now, when we come to a statement in which God says, I have hated Esau, most people want to tone that down because they don't like the idea that God could hate something and choose to hate something in his perfect person and perfect character. So what they say is that this love-hate thing is a quantitative thing. By that, they mean Jacob was loved more, Esau loved less. It's just quantitative in the way that the love and the hate thing was working. In Genesis 29.30, in the episode with Jacob, when he wanted Rachel, he ends up with Leah. It is said that he loved Rachel more than Leah. And in Genesis 29.31, in the same context, the text says the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. And the word that is used there is the same word that's translated hate here in Malachi. But at the core of the argument is the belief That God does not actually hate, but he just prefers one person above another. But that's not what the text in Malachi says here. We can't dodge that point. And here's the kicker. When we examine the rest of the context, and context determines meaning of words. When we examine the rest of the context, it would certainly seem that this is more than just loving something a little less. God will appoint them a place of jackals. He will tear down what they build. He classifies them as wicked, and he is indignant forever. That's certainly far more than just loving one thing more than another. The fact is, God chose not to elect Esau. He chose not to save Esau. He chose not to bless Esau. He chose not to give Esau a bright future. Charles Spurgeon was teaching this text one time, and a woman went to Spurgeon and said, you know, I just don't see how God could hate Esau. And Spurgeon said, that doesn't trouble me in the least. The thing that I can't understand is why he loved Jacob. He said, that's the thing I can't see. He said, I'm not troubled in the least by the fact that God hated Esau. And God's point here to his people is the proof that I loved you is that I chose you. And the proof that I loved you is that I did not choose someone else. I chose Israel. I did not choose another nation. Just like I chose Jacob and I did not choose Esau. So the first love proof is the choice of the individual. The second love proof Is his elective choice of an inheritance. In verse 3, I have made his mountains desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. The inheritance that God chose to give to Israel is a land that one day will be flowing with milk and honey. The inheritance God gave to Edom was a desolate mountain region, a desert land. God says to his people, You want proof? of my love? will look at the fact that I chose you and look at the land I've given to you and then take a look at the land that I've given to Esau and his descendants. It's desert land. Look at where Arabs live, frankly, even today. Look where they live. They're out there in the deserts living like nomads. I mean, they live in desolate land. God says, look at that. Look at your inheritance, then look at theirs. That's proof that I have elected you and love you. The third proof is, my love is proved by my elective choice of indignation. Verse 4, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Now the name Edom is synonymous for Esau, and this ethnic group today is known as the Arabs. And what God promises to do to the Edomites here has never been completely accomplished anywhere in history yet. By virtue of what God is going to do to them, this does seem to suggest this is a real literal hatred here. We're not talking about just loving one group a little less than another. The description of what God says, I'm going to do to the Edomites and to their land would prove not just a quantitative dislike, it proves an actual hatred. God says, I am going to target these people. I'm going to target these people for a judgment. And when we study prophetic passages that deal with what God promises to do to Edom, she deserves every bit of it. According to Isaiah, Edom persecuted Israel. According to Jeremiah, Edom has no wisdom about God. According to Ezekiel, Edom has been a nation of vengeance against Israel. Edom has had a hatred of Israel, according to Amos. Edom has never had compassion on Israel. Edom has been arrogant toward God and against Israel in the book of Obadiah. I mean, look at the attitude the Arabs have toward the Israelis. Is that not true? God basically says, I will make their dwelling place a total and complete desolation. I'm not going to bless them. I'm not going to prosper anything they do. I will make them a waste place. I'll tear them down. I'll see to it that in the end, people will look at where they used to live and call that a wicked territory. I'll see to it that in the end, people will look at that land and say, boy, there's an exhibit of the indignation and wrath of God. And in verse 4, we learn that the Arabs are going to attempt to return to the land, try to rebuild their places. God says, I'll tear it down. When we went through the book of Ezekiel, God predicted what he would do. I will make Mount Zion a waste and a desolation, and I will cut off from it the one who passes through and returns. I will fill its mountains with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. Those slain by the sword will fall. I will make you an everlasting desolation and your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now does that sound like just loving something a little less than something else? I mean, when you read that, you'd say, boy, that sounds like God really has a hatred for people and he targets those people as an object of hatred. So he says to his people, you want proof I love you? You watch what I do in the future with my indignation. His fourth proof is my love will be proved by your future inheritance. Verse 5, but your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. He said, I'm going to prove my love for you because one day you as a nation are going to magnify me, which they were not doing when Malachi writes this book. They weren't magnifying the Lord. But God says, one day that is going to happen. Why is it going to happen? Because I love you. I'm going to do this for you because I've chosen you and I love you. And I'll prove it. And one day I will be magnified all over the world. They'll be looking at you and realize you are the nation of God. We learn from books like Isaiah that the nations of the world will so recognize the election of God that they will actually want to travel to Israel just to worship God. That obviously hasn't happened yet. We learn from Zephaniah that all the peoples of the earth are going to honor and praise Israel when God restores all of her fortunes. And God says, I want my nation to understand this. You'll see this with your own eyes. The nation Israel will see that I have loved you and I have hated those Arabs. I made a choice of you because I loved you. And I believe when Daniel talks about that resurrection in Daniel 12, 1 to 2, it's the resurrection of Daniel's people, Israelis. God's going to raise these people up, and they're going to stand in awe of what they see and fulfill every bit of this. And they will magnify God for what he's done. Now, the point of God beginning this book this way was to try and say to the people, look, my love for you isn't the problem. The problem is you don't fear me. You don't honor me. You don't worship me. You're not concerned about giving me your best. Even though I've loved you and even though I've chosen you, even though I've provided for you, I've preserved you, I've promised I will forever bless you, you just don't take me seriously. So he says, you need to understand this is the way it is. I've loved you, I chose you, end of discussion. Now, as we pointed out, this clearly has to do with the nation Israel, because it says that in verse 1, that this is aimed at Israel. But this very passage was also communicated and repeated to New Testament believers in the book of Romans. So tonight I want you to go to Romans chapter 9, and I want you to see where the Apostle Paul quotes this very text of Scripture. In Romans chapter 9. I want to start reading in verse 11. He tells the story of Esau and Jacob, and then he's going to actually quote Malachi. In Romans nine eleven. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a quote of Malachi 121. Now look at verse 14. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, "'I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, "'For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires.'" You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? If you are here tonight and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have no right to doubt God's love for you. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can rest in the fact, hey, God chose me. Out of all humanity, God chose me. And instead of spending your life questioning God, What's going on, God? Don't you love us? Where's your justice? Instead of spending your life questioning God, spend your life analyzing yourself. And thank God that he chose you. Don't talk back to God. Thank God and live for the Lord. That's something that Israel is still not doing tonight. They still have not applied the book of Malachi. Well, our time is gone. I want to thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.